Hey everybody, welcome to the Founder Hour Podcast. I'm your co-host Posh and we've I'm got Pat. Pat right there. And today we're joined by Ben Goodwin, the founder of Olipop, which is, in my opinion and probably Ben's opinion, a better alternative to soda. I'm a huge fan myself. Uh, we're pers- drinking the Tropical Punch right now is the, is the newest flavor, right? Yep. Yeah, that just went live on our website today, actually. Okay, so yeah. people will be able to buy that soon. Or will be able to buy that. Currently. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a big fan of the root beer because I've grown up loving root beer, Dr. Pepper, all that stuff. So I drink it probably on a weekly basis. Like, you know, I buy it at Whole Foods. You know, we don't get sponsored by Whole Foods, but yeah. whatever. <laughs> We're Too like bad. the polar opposite. Well. This is my, this is my yeah. first time trying it. <laughs> yeah, and and it's, it is incredible. Tried. Yeah. Pat's I got to give it that. So. You know, it's funny because we get a lot of people that are, they try to be on the podcast and they'll send us their drinks. Yeah. Or you know sauces and this and that whatever and like at one point like I think we just have to throw shit out because some of the stuff is not good right right it's been so, my experience yeah so yeah. in this case luckily we love the company and we're like I'll take I'll take more soda like all day um, but Ben anyways thank you for being on the show with us thanks so much for having me uh, yeah. Posh and Pat yeah it's yeah. cool to be here so we can start off with a question that we both love and we ask now we've asked probably two hundred plus founders that we've had on the show is to Kind of run us through your childhood a little bit. Um, you know, you don't have to give a 20-minute response because we can, I'm sure, converse yeah, yeah. In, in between. Uh, but, you know, give us kind of what life was like for, uh, you know, young Ben. Youngling? Yeah, sure. Uh, it isn't all uh, roses in my particular case. Um, though I've had, had some interesting pivots along the way. I was born in San Francisco. I'm 36. I was born in 1985. And uh, kind of downhill from there. <laughs> I mean, I mean, uh, San Francisco's pretty hilly, right? So. <laughs> yeah, that's what, I meant, that's what I meant. No, I mean, uh, yeah, my childhood was was tough. Uh, there isn't really a way to sugarcoat it. Uh, my father died from a surgery complication when I was a year and a half old. That wasn't that great for my mom. <clears throat> she ended up in a relationship with an abusive drug addict, which meant that I got to grow up around that. That was terrible. We also grew up in a lot of poverty. I, it's ironic because we grew, we I lived in Pacific Grove in Monterey, mm. which are very like high end areas. But we had to move like thirteen times because we kept getting evicted. So that wasn't great. And as a byproduct of that, like obviously there's trauma associated with that. There's uh, there's all kinds of stress and anxiety. But we also ate really shitty food. So mm. grew up you know with that whole cluster. And then I don't know, <laughs> like twelve ish or something. I, I don't know why my mom started letting this happen, but I would just like, it was, you know, it was emotional eating on my end, but I would like go to the store and buy a fucking, you know, bag of circus cookies. What are those animals? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Just like eat one of those in a day. The pink and white ones yeah. with the sprinkles on top. Yeah. So that's, I mean, they're delicious. Let's be yeah, honest. But you know, they're not, uh, it's not great for anybody, mm-hmm, especially mm-hmm. that age. So that all happened. And you know, I've, Luckily now I've been in and out of therapy for 20 years and, mm-hmm. and, or a little less than 20 years and tried to be pretty psychologically oriented. And I'd say mm-hmm. going through that, uh, you have to learn a ton about yourself in order to be high functioning. And so just, I've leaned into that and it's been an amazing growth experience, but it's also, you know, you never quite lose all the demons right. or something like that. It's it, it, it runs deep. Yeah. And then yeah. like, I guess what, I mean, did you have any like outlets or things that you turned to as a kid just to kind of get out of that space? You know, well, so I liked reading. I liked reading a lot. Uh, I 
you know, it was funny because I was actually like for a good part of my childhood, I was pretty kind of uh, described it the other day on a podcast as socially central. And the guy was like, I don't even know what that means. <laughs> but, you know, basically it was like quasi popular in like early elementary school. Right. And actually I had these like clubs. So I had this thing called the X-Men Club, okay. like early budding entrepreneurialism. Like basically <laughs> I was like, all right, kids, like let's all collect 50 cents off of our lunch money. We'll pull it up. We'll buy X-Men toys. It'll be great. You know, like, that was my first thing. Actually, this kid told on me for having a club, and the principal came in. He pulled me out of class and was like, Ben, we don't have clubs because clubs turn into gangs. And I was just like, If I could have said, if I had the language of shut the fuck up, that's what I would have used that one time. I just didn't happen to. Um, You know, but the big turning point for me was uh, actually at 14. You know, I had this really interesting shift. So early high school days. Yeah, like freshman. And it, you know, like things were, I wouldn't say they were cooling off, but things had taken like a turn. So I was getting messed with less and that was great mm. and so i did a couple years of just stupid shit and then it was actually this crazy it's like i still remember the day um i was actually eating a bowl of peanut butter as you do and, my, and i don't know my sister came in and was like why are you fucking eating a bowl of peanut butter and i was just like it's a good question i don't know somehow that just sticks in my head but that night i was just like you know what this is stupid this whole thing is i'm doing is stupid it's like it is not going to lead to a good life I had also become like pretty existential with all my anxiety. It was like, mm-hmm. what's the point of life? What happens after you die? We were raised with like no spiritual or religious tradition. So for me, even at like in my teenage years, just even being confronted with those concepts was pretty uh, revelatory or kind of unsettling for me. Was that natural or did you like read it somewhere or come across it somewhere where you started thinking about those things? You know, that's weird because like, I don't know, I had this like, I was always a little drawn towards it, especially, I think, like, Eastern philosophies. Again, not from anything in my home life. I remember being, like, whatever the hell age, and I was reading, like, a National Geographic, and there was, like, some cutout of, like, uh, Shiva is the Hindu god. I was just, I, like, cut it out, and I put it over my bed. Hmm. And I hung, like, red tassels from it. I'm like, (laughs) I don't know who the fuck this is. I didn't even know who that person was. You know, it was really weird. So, I don't know. It may be, a lot of those mythos have, like, really deep kind of uh, psychological drivers, I think, resonate quite naturally with people. Potentially, as a part of that. But it came in through a variety of different conduits, probably mostly reading and that type of exposure. Um but the whole the whole cumulative kind of thing all resulted in just this flip I literally had one day. Woke up the next day, it was like I'm changing all of this. Lost sixty pounds in five months. Well uh, fo- started focusing. Just better eating. Severe at that point, severe caloric restriction, which I don't necessarily recommend yeah. now, but that's what I did then. And then lots of exercise. And then he would go on these like long walks and just psychoanalyze myself and was like, okay, this is happening because of this. And here's the lineage of this. And I see this behavior in myself and see this in the people around me and just like basically broke down my life and all of my patterns. It was like, this is what I'm going to do now instead. And I cut like 80% of my friends. Right. Uh, I just shifted. And this everything. is at 14. It's at 14. Yeah. Did you have any like, people in your like maybe extended family or mentors at school or anyone that was maybe like you could like turn to that like actually cared about you and wanting to help you or no i'm sure there was some teachers or some you know every once in a while but not not really which is the kind of weird i mean i think like some people maybe you know kids can kind of tell that something's off with that kid right like one period of my childhood i'm like doing great you know popular 
looked to by the other kids in certain kind of ways. And then, you know, stuff just starts to go off track. And every, all the kids you can just kind of tell. There's like yeah. some off with that kid. So the kids weren't very helpful. Some of the teachers maybe a little more helpful. Other teachers, not at all. I mean, I remember right. I had this English teacher who would be like, because I was in this gifted program when I was younger. And then I was getting like D's. And it didn't make sense. Right. And she would like read off at the class like everybody's grades on their last test. And it was just like so fucking <laughs> embarrassing. The yeah. whole thing was just so stupid. Yeah. You know, it's like, but like this, again, that's what trauma and and like, negative overwhelming negative emotion will do to anybody but no yeah. i wouldn't say like i really had a lot in the way of concrete support yeah because i mean i'm sure there's like a lot of people out there that feel like they're like alone and lonely yeah but it's like having i don't know what it is and maybe you can explain more about like what what does it take to sort of not be not get too deep into that because obviously dangerous things could happen whether it's drugs or suicide or oh, whatever it might be right that's the norm yeah it's the it's normal the norm, outcome un- yeah. unfortunately yeah. right and yeah. so is there anything that you can think about that maybe you sort of like my, my question was going to be like did you lean on anyone but if there's nobody what did you lean on was it just kind of yourself and you know that in like an intrinsic motivation to yeah. to do well in life like what? it's interesting that you bring up intrinsic motivation because i've been thinking about around some of our hiring and personnel decisions and even third-party decisions, like intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation. Like if you're hiring people into your business and you can't track what their intrinsic motivation is and it's alignment, like you can tell it's off. But um, you asked a good question, so I'm going to try to get you a halfway decent answer. Uh you know, I mean, one thing that does pop into my... So I think one thing... This is not the most exciting thing. I think one thing that did help is the guy that was the primary driver of my abuse wasn't actually my father. Yeah. Right? I think... I really think that, like, <clears throat> if I had to look at him and like, see my genetics, I think that would have really fucked me up. For sure. Um, mm. You know, I think the other thing is, despite the fact that we moved a lot as a, when we were when I was a kid, like still lived in a reasonably nice area. So I could go outside and I could see, you know, the trees and I could walk down to the beach and stuff like that. So, you know, I, I would say that like, I took a lot of solace in my imagination. I took a lot of solace in nature. I took a lot of solace in things I was interested in. The other thing, and we could go down a deep rabbit hole on this, so I'll try not to, but there's a type of psych- psychometric testing called a Hogan test, which mm-hmm. is awesome. I got certified two years ago. It's like, you know, most psychometric testing is pretty bullshit, but I'm a big advocate for Hogan. Uh, but I have an executive coach who read my score, my report, and it's like a hundred data points. It's much deeper mm. than a lot of them. She's like, I read over 1500 of these reports and you have the single most defiant personality profile <laughs> that I've ever seen. And and she only deals with like founders and CEOs. Like what she, exactly does it measure? Like, what are some examples of the data points? Oh my! So there's like meta points. It's there's meta points and sub points. It's broken into three basic buckets. One is your HPI, which is your day to day strengths, how you show up under normal conditions. Uh, the next one is your HDS, so it's your derailers. Is how it's kind of quantified. It's like if you're not paying attention to yourself, or if you're really stressed and you're triggered and you're derailing, this is how it's likely to express itself. It's a little bit of a misnomer because those are actually strengths. They're just strengths that arise in relationship to stress. And mm-hmm. if you can manage them, they stay strengths. And if you can't, mm-hmm. then they become maladaptive. And then there's your MVPI, which is kind of your drivers and motivations. And yeah. so there's, I don't know, there's like eight to 
14 kind of meta scores. And then each one of those meta scores has like five to seven sub scores. So this is like a lot of data. Right. Yeah. How do you think that learning about you being defined through that test defined you or not even defined you, but like, did it have any sort of effect on you? Well, I wasn't surprised. <laughs> and that was recent, right? That was not too long ago, or that I got the test. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that was probably it's probably two, two, three years old at this point. But you you shouldn't need to test more than every five to ten years. I would, and if you ask my sister, it wouldn't surprise her either. That was such a pain in her ass growing up uh, in certain ways. But uh, yeah, I don't like. I saw it and I was like, this all makes sense. I mean, this is one of the things like getting into therapy pretty early. I mean, I started <clears throat> therapy at like 17 and I've been in and out of it. Like I found certain things more effective inside of it, certain things less effective, but I truly do believe, <clears throat> and this is, I'm like the case study for this, that having a lot of shit to deal with, including serious trauma, if you do the actual work, which is excruciating and grueling and seemingly endless, like you do that actual work to get to know yourself, to get to work with your parts, your internal drivers. I think that the people who have dealt with real shit and then deal with their real shit have uh, capacities that will be that could be very difficult for other people to to kind of come by. So, like, like what? I mean, I see it. Well, so I see this all the time. For example, like we'll get people who will apply who will like have an MBA, and you know we've right. got a couple of those in the business. And yeah. no disrespect to MBAs, but no. I've seen people come out of fucking MBA programs don't have a clue what they're doing. You know, right. like I'm looking for like people. in terms of skills. Well, more like everything at the end of the day boils down to emotions. Yeah, everything. That's yeah. why like book working with emotional intelligence, phenomenal book. Uh, and, you know, they, they they have all these studies in the book and they try to track, like, outcomes based mm-hmm. on high EQ versus low EQ. Like, at senior leadership positions, your success rate is, like, 80 to 90% determ- percent determined by your EQ. They're, you know, a high EQ senior leader produces, and again, you'll have to read the book yeah. to get the studies, but produces, like, 127x the kind of financial outcomes and high impact outcomes. that. So, at the end of the day, everything's being driven by emotion, um, and so what I look for is things like grit and courage and mental flex, like mental agility. And like, these are the things that actually make you successful. It's not that you don't have to know anything, but those are easily like teachable. Yeah. You give me somebody with, if high, you're able to be like mentally agile, for example, I could teach you how to do certain things. A billion percent. Yeah. And you're also going to be higher impact by your, your, your nature because right. you're going to be looking at what's the real dynamics of the situation what's the real problem how do i how do i attack you know attack it and then how do i have the social skills to bring people with me and build trust like Mm -hmm. that's the difference between success and failure there's i mean so i'm also a college dropout it's like later in the story but then also so you finished high school though so i finished high school you finished high school yeah things were getting a little better well yeah i mean eventually just got out of the house which is super useful right but the other thing that i did is like you know i super focused on nutrition as a part of that and like the deeper and deeper I went into nutrition, that's actually what set me up for my life trajectory. Because when you grow up eating standard American diet, aka sad, um, and, and you're not, did not know that's what it's called, but yeah, that it, is what uh, it makes it's sense. Called. Yeah, um, we're Middle Eastern, so it's completely opposite. It's like yeah. med. <laughs> it's like medicine. <laughs> uh, I'll take it any day. One of my favorite restaurants <laughs> in the world is actually uh, Shalom Yal out of uh, Portland. It's mm. oh, never so been. God. Oh my god, the hummus. Jeez. Okay. Anyway, uh, wait. So, favorite- so you mentioned like having like a severe caloric deficit, right? Like when yeah, you were, yeah. like, did that cause? Well, any, that like, was just for a period. Of for time. a period. Okay. Yeah. So you you kind of got yourself on track in terms of eating mm-hmm. healthy and like doing it doing it in a healthy way. Yeah. Well, yeah. so 
basically it's about converting over to nutrient dense foods uh, and getting all the shit out of your diet. And if you've been living for many years on a nutrient deficient, like toxic diet, and then you switch and then, you know, you you do a handful of things to support yourself. And one of them is switching to a nutrient dense, healthy diet. Um, the implications would be pretty profound. Like all I was expecting was I'll have some more energy and I'll keep the weight off. But I, what I've personally found is that after a couple of years of doing this, like the transition and I could track it as I was getting deeper into the nutrition was affecting kind of my emotional stability and my cognitive capabilities. And mm. that's where I got like yeah. really interested. I was like, what the hell is this relationship? And like, also it's pretty paradigm shifting to go from one of those to the other. And that ultimately is the experience that I would like to create for yeah. as many people that I, as I can. In terms of emotions, like what did you find? How did you find yourself being different? Like, were you like generally happier, more motivated, more like energetic? Like what were the, the immediate sort of results? I felt more just emotionally stable. Yeah. Uh, I am pretty neurotic. Yeah. Like I do, I do have a tendency to feel a decent amount of negative emotion. I'm passionate. So I tend to be a little more volatile, but even just like being able to name and know that and then have like systems for you. You're self-aware. You have, yeah. It, for me, if I'm not self-aware, I'm basically a nightmare, right? Yeah. It yeah. like never work out for myself or yeah. anybody else. <laughs> and I'm assuming that's something that's been like a work in progress over time with therapy and all these things Dude, to become more to, self-aware. To, to, today, every day. Yeah. yeah. Every day is a process to become more self-aware. You can't ever st- – so that's – and that's – this again is kind of what I was getting back to with people who have actually worked through some shit. Like yeah. – because it's kind of a false dich- it's a false ultimatum anyway like the idea that you could not work on yourself the idea that you cannot stop growing like that's kind of a false choice right. so those of us who have b- like seen the abyss i guess a little bit and being like oh shit this is what's going to swallow me if i don't like then it just becomes like pretty obvious like this it's a false choice to not do it plus yeah. it also is the upside of making life itself a lot more interesting if i'm not interested in life like i can't even keep myself engaged enough to manage myself so this right. is part of why i do insane things like create beverage companies because I, <laughs> also i do just want to for just for the record for posterity's sake i want to mention i am a co-founder yeah my other co-founder is david david lester who i've been working for for, for 10 years awesome yeah, yeah we'll definitely talk yeah. about how that yeah. all came about but yeah. i guess you mentioned uh being a college dropout whatever so you ended up going to college yeah how long Where'd were you, you there go? Yeah. So I went through uh, the Monterey Peninsula College Community College, finished that. So I think I have an A. I'm not even totally sure. Uh, and then I switched over to UCSC, UC Santa Cruz. I was going for environmental banana slugs. slugs. Banana slugs. <laughs> uh, I was going for you know, like, but like an infinitesimal period of time. I think <laughs> yeah. I had made the decision to drop out. Actually, <laughs> I went to this fucking like thing where you're supposed to sign up for your, there's some sort of orientation. Like, I don't yeah, know what the fuck it was, but yeah, they're basically like. If you want to sign up for classes at the orientation, bring $400. And if you don't bring it, then you have to wait like two weeks. And I was like, is this how the fuck this is going to be? Every time there's an opportunity to give you some cash, you're going to let me like get a leg up. And if I like, I don't want to be your cash machine. And then I also, you know, at the same time, I was throwing raves and warehouse parties because that's another thing you do. I also had a farmer's market booth selling coconuts and all sorts of shit. It was like a lot of things going on. Uh, but uh, I actually met this dude at one of the uh, raves that I threw or I saw him rec- and then I recognized him later. Basically, dude is a civil rights activist. He's now now deceased, but won a Supreme Court case by himself with no uh, legal representation in 1983. Coleander versus Lawson. He's the reason why it's illegal for police to ask you for ID without probable cause. So he 
was like at one of my shows randomly because he was taking over uh, the Golden State Theater in Monterey, which is like this 1,500-person vaudeville theater. And I see him in Whole Foods. I'm like, thanks for coming to my show. Uh, and then he just like blows my face back with too much verbal fluency. But the 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 net of it is like he wants me to come down and interview because he liked my show. And I do that. And then it turns into like okay, I'm the co-executive producer. But the only thing that was really interesting was this guy kind of being my mentor. But like... I saw his example of like, here's a guy who didn't have a law degree, didn't have a lawyer, went to the Berkeley Law Library, read the law, took it all the way to Supreme Court, and then won his case. And yeah. I found that just, you know, I am a person, like this is one of the things about, I don't fit inside of any kind of like nice little boxes. So this gave me, it was very inspiring to me, this idea that I could kind of really carve my own path. And I really like the idea that things are module, modular and like flexible and you can kind of b- build things in interesting ways. Um, Sorry, I might have missed this part. What did you, what were you going to be working on with him? Okay, so he was taking over a theater. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. yeah. Right. And so he invited me down to interview to be the co-executive producer because he saw my show was like, this is like, God. And together. the idea yeah. was to throw shows at this theater, like similar to yours or was it, what was No, like- we did like, uh, we did like Bob Dylan and the beach boys and, uh, BB King and Lily Tomlin and Willie Nelson. It was stuff like that. Oh, sweet. Yeah. Those are pretty okay. big names. Live event venue. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it was, it was a, fi- a 1500 person theater. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So uh, that's why you, you dropped out to go work, work. No. So oh. <laughs> I was doing all of that stuff. Simultaneously, all of those. Yeah, that's um, doing too many things has always been a uh, byproduct of my life. But no, I was doing all that stuff at the same time. So I was going to school, or I was. I think I was like prepping to go to school when that started. But I was I was throwing my own shows uh, and farmers market, and then also working various jobs. Mm. And did you have any idea what you would do, like? after college or like at the time when you were still in college, like did you have like an, a plan or something in place or you were just like, did, did you find anything interesting? Like what did you even study? What was the, well, so yeah, but so I was going to school for environmental science. Okay. I kind of, this would have been kryptonite to me in, in retrospect, I kind of was like, maybe I'll go into environmental law or environmental science. I like science. I think it'd be halfway decent in law. <clears throat> I like the environment. <laughs> it's like, it's always been these, like even getting into beverage was kind of stupid. It was just like, yeah, you know, beverages are cool. Like it wasn't, it wasn't a particularly, it did not start out as a particularly sophisticated thought yeah. process. It was just like, and I had some idea of that. And so what I actually dropped out of college to do was, well, I actually dropped out of college with no specific plan. Got it. I just was like, I don't want to be these people's cash machine. I think I can do something interesting on my own. Also, again, overly simple simple thought, but like what really motivated me was learning how to think, not what to think. Yeah. So I'm like, we live in the information age. So if you've got a good if you've got a hungry mind and a good BS filter, you can get a lot of really good information. And so for me, it was just like I want to keep myself hungry and learning and going. And kind of the way to do that is just to fucking throw away the safety net of the piece of paper and just earn whatever I earn out of, out of life. Did you have like a savings account or anything to just keep you going or no, not at all. (laughs) Bro, I only had health insurance through a business like three years ago. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, like, did you feel like you had not much to lose like at that point in your life? So, you know, I don't, I never really thought of it as like a lot to lose or not a lot to lose. I always thought of just trying to think about like, am I making a fear-based decision? Am I making a, like a strong decision. Am I doing something because I actually want to be doing it? And 
I just, I was like, if I'm going to stay in college with how I currently feel about it, I'm going to make a fear-based decision, you know, and I would rather try to try my hand at doing something more interesting. I, I like that you bring that up because it's, it, it kind of ties in with like trusting your gut. And like, I feel like totally. yeah. it also ties into that. Like as human beings, I feel like we think we have a good grip on what the future is going to look like, but we, nobody actually knows. And, yeah. and, 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 all you know is what you know at the moment. And if you feel like something is the right thing to do, whether or not like you're trying to map out what your decision is going to lead to in the future. Yeah. But the truth is like, you just don't know. And so sometimes you just have to kind of like just throw yourself off the, the edge and hopefully figure out, you know, what's next. <laughs> yeah. And you learn, I mean, you kind of get to figure out what you're made out of, which is actually kind of like not to get into this territory, but it's kind of the masculine art, you know, arch- archetype here. Like, you know, figure out what the fuck I'm made out of through struggle is kind of a thing. And so I, I like that a bit. I like the idea of like getting out and being like, all right, let's like see what I can actually see what I can do. But I would, you know, I would say like, again, it gets back to that. Like I have to be interested in life kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Like I just, I can't get a piece of paper and go do a job and get a paycheck and all the fucking shit that is so standard. I'm like, I just, I'm not wired for it. Ben, at this point, did you have a relationship with your mom or no? I did. Yeah. Yeah, I did. Actually. I mean, I, I moved in with her. That's a whole story of how that, the the two of them finally separated. But then after that happened, I moved in with her. And that was during the college years or. Yeah, that was like, no, that was just like, that was pre-college. That was like, 17 to 19 and yeah. then at 1920 i moved yeah. uh, up to santa cruz did you have any like part of you that wanted to prove something to somebody or no that's never been a big i definitely can hold grudges i definitely can but that's never been a huge a huge thing for me mm-hmm. i really like again i think it's just like doing something that has i just think like Meaning is the thing that generates the most satisfaction. It's also like when you're more existentially motivated, it's basically what you're seeking. So just like doing something meaningful to me and learning more about myself and like testing the world, I think was more drivers for me. How how did you like assess whether something was meaningful or not? Was it the impact it was having on other people or was it the impact it was having on you or both? Or That's a great question. I think... At the end of the day, I would say it was more how I felt it. Because I do actually feel like I had to, how it could serve the common good. And I do feel like I had to kind of bifurcate at that at some point. Because I was very interested in music. And like, I threw great shows. I've been DJing for like 20 years. I also, I mean, I have a music studio. I was producing music. I released an album in my early 20s. So... And who knows if I would have been successful doing that. But that actually did hold a lot of weight for me. And at the end of the day, the reason why I went in this direction was because I was like, okay, probably can positively impact more other people if this feels less selfish to pursue this path. Did you feel as though you were a good marketer? Like when you were doing even those like music events, I mean, having 1500 people there, it's not like automatic. Like Totally. Got, yeah. So I'm just curious and like how that obviously ties into now, but was that something that you were skilled at? Like getting out the word and talking to people and hustling? I mean, I just want to know kind of like what went into that. Yeah. I mean, I have a very strong, consistent. So the one thing, and this doesn't, this doesn't work well for me in my relationships, but it works really well for me in my <laughs> quote professional life is I am very critical and I am a quality snob. I fucking love quality like above everything. So, uh, I actually find 
a lot of marketing pretty annoying. And mm. I think actually probably most people do mm. because for me, I, like if the thing is quality, like, yes, you want to be able to communicate. So people understand that that quality is there, but the idea that you're marketing without having some quality. So yes, I can hustle. Yes, I can. Like typically, even though I'm not actually particularly, uh, I'm, I'm reasonably loqua- loquacious with my words. So I'm not sometimes always perfect cramming them down, but I can, quasi efficiently like encapsulate something like so i think like i had enough of those skills yeah. but what's always driven me a lot more is like i actually really care about doing something that's quality because that it brings me so much satisfaction do you think having high quality is like you know reduces the need for marketing in, in general it should yeah. <laughs> i think it, it should i mean i think the challenge is and we, you know without being too inflammatory we're running into this now the challenge is that you know, it's a crowded marketplace right. for most marketplaces, right? So right. you can put out a really high quality product if you aren't able to communicate around that or kind of generate that emotional connection. Then uh, other products that have put a lot less time into the quality of the product can say whatever. Right. So, so that's yeah. I feel like when you reach a point of scale where you have to go from, like, I agree with you. Like, like if your product is good, I'm going to tell my friends, hey, check this out. They're going to be like, oh, they're going to have it at their parties. Yeah. And then you're going to see it. And then naturally, other people are kind of evangelizing your product. Totally. Yeah. But then you get to the point that you're like, fuck, this nasty product out here is like spending millions on marketing. And right. they're taking my customers for sure because, right. I don't know, it's a hot thing to do. So how do you get, I mean, I guess we could talk about that later when we talk about Olipop, but I feel like that is when marketing, you know, matters. Yeah, a million percent. Right. And I think that, but even like it being quote worth it to pull that lever, if you don't have the thing underneath, like, so for me, it's like the, the thing, the way that I can get myself motivated around the marketing is like, we have to defend the thing that's actually got like value, right. it, the thing that's actually been well thought through and the reasons why we're doing this. Cause it right. becomes like one, it's about the product quality. But the other thing is it is about the mission and the vision. Like right. there's a lot of layers to what we're trying to do at Olipop that aren't immediately apparent. And it's important to me that those things land and get anchored because if they do get anchored in the industry, they'll be shifting for portions of the industry. Mm-hmm. So those are the kind of things that go along with the high quality product where I'm like, this is worth fighting for and so go for it so let's talk about when you joined or became a part of this beverage industry and how that even came to be yeah so i mean and and i might have skipped several years here but you drop out of college what do you do and then how do you get into the beverage pretty quickly after doing that i was like okay well i actually read the uh the cliff bar guys yeah the white roads and so I was like, that was, and that was actually part, that was before I'd actually made the choice to drop out. And I was like, all right, let's do it. Um, but so, <laughs> you know, I, I thought like a great conduit for what's impacted me is this kind of, is our products. I like products. I like, you know, I like really high quality things as discussed. So maybe I'll put together this kind of product. Maybe I'll do a beverage. And then I just, a friend's boyfriend was starting a kombucha company. Uh, and he was like, yeah, I need some help. And I was like, cool. Like I want to do something with like coconuts and holy basil and all this other weird shit, but like, let's, I'll just join you and I'll start doing kombucha. So let's do it. And that's actually where I find out what the microbiome is. Yeah. And then the brain got access and that became a whole thing, which is now why I moved in that direction. So actually that was really helpful to have started there. What was that brand or is that brand, has that brand become anything? It was pretty, it, it got pretty big. I was there for about two years. Um, it's called Kombucha Botanica. It isn't 
any in circulation anymore. Uh, as you guys maybe recall, Lindsay Lohan had some issue with her kombucha, and it all got pulled from the shelf for like. I don't remember that. But it was a, it was a thing. I don't know. It's like ten years ago. Or something. With maybe. that specific brand. No, or just kombucha, kombucha in general. Uh, actually, it would have oh. been like fifteen years. Anyway, it's like yeah, yeah, it was a while ago. Basically, yeah. all kombucha got pulled from the <laughs> yeah. shelf because sounds it, like Lindsay Lohan was the problem. Lindsay yeah. Lohan probably was the problem, but you know, <laughs> the, but it is true that you know the issue yeah. is it is a ferment has yeast in it, so it can't create alcohol, which is technically above the like 05 percent. You have to be below 05 percent. Oh, she got a drunk driving. She got it. Yeah, got yeah, it. Yeah, or uh, not a drunk kombucha. driving. She, she wow. had like an ankle bracelet that measured blood alcohol. That's right. Some fucking crazy. Who cares? But yeah. like yeah. the basic point is that like it got pulled off the shelf. Fucking Lindsay Lohan. Yeah. For a year, and then mm-hmm. Kombucha Botanica, in particular, when they reform, because I was gone at that point, but when they reformulated, the margins weren't there, and they had. Uh, we actually had kind of started the kombucha bar with Whole Foods, which is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then you know when once that started diversifying out to other brands i think they just lost the but for you i assume that was a good kind of entry into the space because you get to meet all these contacts and i mean what were you doing there i mean i was basically brewing the kombucha (laughs) so i was on the product side and i was on the op side it was was, it's like whatever it's hyper startup i was the like it was this guy adam and then me for a while so you know i would do some demos and i do some ops director yeah exactly party of two yeah uh and then more people ended up joining but um yeah i I worked mostly on that side how how did you even learn how to do all that i mean was it just by like trial and error very big mental agility yeah it's the mental agility no (laughs) i really am bizarrely good at figuring shit out yeah uh and it's helpful that adam also knew how to do it so you can learn a lot you can just learn how to do it but then I am the kind of person who I'll start learning and then I'll be like, hey, what else can I learn about this? And blah, 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 blah. And that's how, you know, you have skills. Because obviously it's a great skill, especially in this industry because, you know, you often hear, and when you talk about the companies that probably need the marketing and they're probably the ones that are like outsourcing product development and like formulation, which, you know, it's like at that point, what is the company even? You know, like you're just kind of reselling someone else's product. A hundred percent. So I'm just curious because, you know, it didn't sound like growing up, you know, you were like much of a tinker when it came to this. So you, you sort of fell into this. Well, okay, this would be a good time to be uh, self-aggrandizing to a slight extent. So I yeah. have had my brain scanned. Yeah. And I do have an objectively weird brain. Okay. Uh, if you guys want to hear about that, I mean, yeah, do, you why know not? About, do you know, do you know no. anything? About, okay. So there's delta, theta, alpha, beta, gamma. Those are the brain, this is a spectrum of brain waves. Um, suffice to say that 99.9% of people do all of their kind of conscious processing in their beta spectrum. Uh, my brain does the majority of its processing in high alpha. Okay. Um, so they don't know what that means. They just know that it like it's so bizarre that it can't really get compared against the DARPA database of brains. Brain it's a it's a different process of thinking, is what it is. Or? Yeah, I mean, so basically, like alpha is hypnogogic, moving into subconscious, and then theta is subconscious, and then delta is like birth, death, coma. And we always have all the brain waves going. It's just like what are we actually using to process? Um, so. What I just think it means is that I use actually more of my subconscious to do more of my actual conscious processing, which is mm. the weird part around it. Mm. But it, what it does allow me to do is it, 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 for whatever reason, it's like I'm, I'm horrible at like, oh, I need to talk to somebody. So let's set up a calendar invite and check all these different schedules and then reply to the thing in the email and click all the – but like you asked me to fill out a, a form and it's like torture for me. But it allows me to be like take large amounts of kind of long, non-linear data or like compare a lot of pieces of information that are disparate and then synthesize them. So I can do that pretty easily comparatively. 
It's just it, like basic is that something? Tasks. Yeah, is that something that, <laughs> okay. uh, and whether you know this about yourself or you were told based on those tests, but is that something that you're born with, or did that happen over time? That's a good question. I don't have the answer to. Yeah. I suspect it's like a lot of these things tend to be a combination, mm-hmm. like sociopaths are, are a good example. Mm-hmm. It's like mm-hmm. or depression. Like it happens all the time. Like basically, right. you're born with a certain genetic coding. Right. Then, depending on what happens to you developmentally it can express itself in a number of different ways. I bet, so my guess is that I probably had some genetic predispositions and then went through all the stuff that I went through and then that's mm-hmm. just one of the ways my brain's adapted. Yeah. So you left your job here after two years or so. What do you What do you do next? Yeah. <clears throat> then I basically just did a bunch of freelance product development. You know, I wanted to learn how to make uh, a whole bunch of different things. Uh, and so... That and that wasn't that long. That was just like two years, but basically different businesses. You know, the problem was I eventually got kind of dissatisfied with that because I was like, okay, I'm like making pretty good money for a dude who just dropped out of college and is making products. But I just felt like I was making these like esoteric. I mean, I live in California too, so it's right. like esoteric high end products. If people didn't need more esoteric high end products. Yeah. So at a certain point, I just was like, I want to get back into beverage, and I want to do something that is actually at scale, you know, because that's what led me into OB, which was my next big kind of beverage attack. Mm-hmm. And, and, and how are you, how are you like even like, like imagining what you're going to be building? Like what, like where were you looking for opportunities? Did it just come to you or? So, I mean, like, yeah, I mean, this is another good example where like at that point I was kind of at another crossroads because I was either like, I either wanted to create some sort of AI platform <laughs> That could analyze all the bills going through Congress and then break them down into like relevant information for everyday voters and then like pull out the parts that might be important for them and then actually create like a fourth branch of government. I don't know if I feel that way now after understanding <laughs> some of the there's been some cut cuts to education, which makes would make that concept a little difficult. But um or I was like, or I want to do a, a product slash beverage at scale. One way though is like I'm getting restless. I want to do something that has... And you just enjoy the industry, I assume? Like, is that what it was? I don't really enjoy the beverage industry that much. Yeah. 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 So why did you want to get back into it? Well, like, in general, I perceive... I'm not, if you can't tell, like like a a business guy. Like, you know, that's not really, like, my thing. The reason why I went into business was because it was like, well, it seems like we give a huge shit about money. (laughs) <laughs> and it seems like we give a ton of influential power to these corporations. So that seems like the perfect vehicle to make a positive change. Right. So that's the only reason I kind of got into business in the first place. Um, in terms of like products, I think it was a little bit of a, and beverages specifically, I think it was just like, again, it wasn't like, so, it was somewhat hubristic thinking. It was like, well, beverages get big, which is the reason why a lot of people get into beverages. Cause it's like, right. oh, I see them and they're cool and they get big. But I knew it was an opportunity to actually have scaled impact. I mean, if you look at the soda industry, for example, it's mm-hmm. a forty billion dollar industry with ninety seven percent household penetration, mm-hmm. and they've directly corroborate, you know, generated a, a country that has thirty seven percent of the country is diabetic or pre diabetic, and those are conservative. And this is from the CDC, but those are commonly understood to be conservative numbers. So, so the impact can be really substantial, whether you're undermining people's health or whether you're supporting people's health. Yeah. Uh, either way, though, it was like I want to do something at scale and ended up being like, okay, well, I have this like set of skills in this particular 
territory. So let's just like double back down to those. Do you think not being like a business guy and having that business hat on when you were thinking about the business um, and maybe I don't, I don't want to say it's like naivete, but like it could have been maybe from like a business standpoint no, of for sure. looking yeah. at a, a very crowded, noisy industry and yeah. being like, I can penetrate this with a new product. Like, is yeah. that a little bit of like a crazy, like thinking, like it is had that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. And there's <laughs> like, <laughs> I didn't, I didn't find this out until later, <laughs> but the, uh, the stats are 2% of beverage businesses make it to a million dollars in revenue. And then 2% of those make it to 10 million in revenue. Million. So, yeah, a million. That's it. Yeah. So it's like point yeah. zero zero four. It's a very very small percentage less, yeah. of beverage companies yeah. that make it past ten. Million yeah, because I yeah. who's that? There's this investor on Shark Tank, Rohan, I believe. Uh, Maybe. Rohan something. I don't know, but he's in the beverage industry, and like every time there's like a beverage company that comes and pitches, they all just like never invest. They're just like. <laughs> We're not doing it. Right. Yeah, it's like, hard. Yeah, like we're just, it's, there's no point. We're never going to get our money back. It's capital intensive yeah. uh, to your point about the marketing. Yeah. It's credit yeah. space. Again, I think you need to do something really interesting. Right. That's a, that's a good start. A lot of the, you know, a lot of the beverage ideas are iterative or not even. They're just like, like no one asked for this. And no so what was, this. so what was different about OB? What, what was it? It's <laughs> a great question. So Obi was basically the first. Okay, do you guys know what water kefir is? Water kefir, no. Water kefir. Do you know milk kefir? Yes. Okay, so like wa- K E F I R. Yeah. So Got water it. kefir is the non-dairy version of milk yeah. kefir. Like we have kefir cheese, which is like right. lebni. Yeah. 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 But it's a great culture. Like yeah. from a uh, yeah. Yeah. The the it's very good for your digestive system. Hundred percent. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So what my goal was to do was to something. I was like, hey, kombucha is great. Done that a little bit. Kombucha has five to eight microorganisms present in it. Typically, it's, uh, it's acetic acid base, so it's nice and stable. It kind of it ferments in a very like stable, slow, predictable way. Typically, water kefir is a lot more interesting because it has like nineteen different microorganisms in it. In it, but it's a lot more uh, unstable. So I thought it was like a very interesting challenge. Like if you could find a way to actually commercialize and scale this, like you'd have a, a really superior fermented mm-hmm. drink. Um, so but how about taste wise? Well, that's, I mean, it tastes good if it's done correctly, but it can go off more easily. Right. Yeah. yeah. And then it's got that. Cause I'm just imagining like milk ke- kefir and it's just like, well, so yeah, that's, I don't know. So there's a lot of, uh, there's lactose in milk. Right. Lactic acid is then part of the byproduct. So all right. the kefirs produce a lot of lactic acid. Yeah. It smells like feet. So yeah. that was one of the things I wanted to kind of try to get past. It was right. insane. Yeah. One of the things that my uh, mentor did say to me that has always stuck with me is like, if it doesn't seem nearly impossible or impossible at the start, it's probably not worth doing. So, you know, that's like kind of kind of a yeah. thing. But yeah, I mean, the R&D process on that particular product was four years. And I Jeez. hired a microbiologist and an organic chemist. I built... Over the course of that four four years, built three different like microbiome R and D labs. Did you raise money for this? No, at that time, no. I had three different income streams, and I used those to the basically fund consulting this. and stuff you were doing. Or yeah, the product development. I was doing like SEO work for a while. <laughs> I was doing some customer service. I was doing yeah, I was doing a ton of different things, just constantly working and living half time between the West Coast and the East Coast. Mm. That was. That was chill. Yeah. So uh, how many hours a week were you spending on the business? Like realistically? Oh, I mean, 
like a, a decent amount because it was it was local. So, but there was a certain period of where it was like, okay, I'm gonna check in. We're gonna do a couple hours in the lab. Then you'll have your marching orders. I had there was a lab assistant, so they would run a certain amount of the actual experiments with me not physically being there. Yeah. But then we'd have to keep reconverting. But yeah, I mean, I'm also working. I would be up until two, three in the right. morning. You know, like when it was necessary, sitting right. at the lab bench because the other thing. As we starting to get closer to success with that product is when I had this concept of like, while we're at it, let's make it a soda because you sure. know let's actually disrupt that industry because that's right. not a big deal. Yeah. Um, but then not none of the non nutritive sweeteners tasted good enough, so then I had to like make my own, uh, and that was really. I mean, it wasn't. I had to blend very specific things together in an unusual way to get to the outcome I was looking for. But then- and, and we can talk about this more like in a bit, because uh, I'm, but I'm, I'm imagining something like this would need to be really popular at scale for you to make like a successful company and like make totally. profit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so did you, were you thinking that far ahead? Like how, how did you think that this would all turn out? Like, were you going to, you know, make the best product you can make yeah. and then try to get into like as many stores as possible. And, or like, what was the, or were you going to go like direct to businesses, like B2B? Like, what was the idea? No, it was definitely selling it to retailers. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I knew I was going to have to raise money at some point. And so while I was doing all this as well, I was also looking for a business partner. I was actually looking for the, just the right, it was the Goldilocks business partner for like three years. Um, it was really, really picky, and I would go through these different rounds, and eventually ended on David, who was the was the right fit. But you know, that for the four year R and D process was pretty much done by then. I mean, it, you had to have a product that actually like tasted good, and mm. you knew you could scale, and you'd had genetically assay like it was something real yeah. that I was able to bring to the table when we kind of met, so that he could be like, "Okay, we can move forward with this." Did it go anywhere? Did OB go anywhere? Yeah, it did. It did. Uh, it was it was experiencing. You know, we did get above the million dollar mark. It was experiencing like pretty good growth, like two, three hundred percent. You know, we did end up exiting. Uh, we exited a little earlier than we we wanted to um, because of some partnership issues. But we also learned a ton through that process. Yeah, and you know, the, and that was like late two thousand sixteen. So. Uh, that was like that was a seven year journey start to front front to back. Got it. Um, and sitting there at the end of 2016 with some cash finally in my pocket, which was cool. Uh, but then you know, and, and I like flew to Japan for a couple of weeks and was like, oh, I've always wanted to visit and like clear my head and just because beverage industry is absolutely brutal. And chatting David, I was like, you know, do you want to do this again? Do you want to do something else? Like, what do you? What do you and want what was David's background? So David. Uh, is from north uh, northeast, uh, sorry, northwest England. Okay. Uh, so grew up near Liverpool. Uh, he actually out of college went to work for Diageo, mm-hmm. and he was there for about ten years. So where David and I are really good compliments. And for those that don't know, Diageo owns like every single alcohol. That, yeah, that you, that you consume. Yeah, pretty, pretty much. <laughs> yeah, there, there used yeah. to be Seagrams and Diageo. Yeah. I think. Fucking Diageo about secrets. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, <laughs> what were you looking for in terms of qualities, and like, how did you end up finding David and like connecting with him? Yeah, I mean, the getting back to the EQ part of the conversation, it sometimes you know you find people with like the hyper impressive resume, mm-hmm. which I went through, you know, an iteration or two of that. Uh, but you need somebody in startup who's going to fucking put their head down and work, and that dude works. And I think the other thing that's great about David in compliment to me, first of all, like personality wise, we're very different. He's like zero neuroticism, hyper stable. The guy you talk to on Mondays, the guy you talk to on Thursday. Uh, and he also brought some of the kind of professional 
polish that I was clearly and probably to this day still am lacking. Uh, and he had more of a marketing background. I mean, this is what yeah. he basically did was like innovation launches and the marketing and kind of market right. segmentation at Diageo. It was like the perfect, perfect fit. Like I barely knew my way around and fucking... Yeah, three-year model at that point. So Wait, what, you just put out like a job listing or something for co-founder, or like what was the process? Of- I had that was one thing I did at one point or multiple points. <laughs> uh, it was a certain combination of like networking. I think by then, you know, I had a couple people who just believed in me. Uh, who said <laughs> this? All the fucking crazy shit I was doing, man. I also had like three co-ops at one point in the middle of all of this. It's just fucking ridiculous. But, uh, you know, like, so I had a handful of like actually somewhat successful people who believed in, in me and what I was doing. And I think had thrown like, I don't know, sub $50,000. And at that point, um, anyway, one of them knew a woman who worked at Diageo, who was actually David's boss. Mm. He went on a sabbatical because he got really, he's just like, I'm overselling fucking whiskey to people. He kind of had a similar thing. He's like, (laughs) I'm tired of selling alcohol to people who don't need more alcohol. (laughs) So he went on a sabbatical, came back. He's like, you know what? I'm not coming back to Diageo. And after a decade, like he was definitely on a track. And David, I assume, was was older than you. He is. How How did you know? Just the name. That's the vibe. Yeah, David, yeah, David yeah. Lester. Yeah, yeah. He, he is older yeah, than me. Yeah. Uh, by a couple of years. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you said 10 years of experience. You at the time. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. I think he's six. He's like, yeah, he's six years older than me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but still relatively like excited and fresh and ready to go to, in a startup environment. back then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Especially back then, yeah. Yeah. Um, Sorry, and this is around what year? Yeah, so I was, uh, let's see. 2012? Yeah, I think somewhere back there. I mean, I was 28, so it was eight years ago. Yeah, so 2012, 2013. Um, 2014, somewhere in that little, somewhere in that nugget. Not too long ago. Not that long ago, yeah. But, I mean, the the compliment has worked out really nicely just because there's a, the dynamic between us is pretty, it leads to some also differences in perspective, certainly differences in temperament. And again, like everything else, when we lean into them and work them out, the synergy that it provides mm-hmm. is like very good for the company. So did he move here or he was still in London? He was living in Brazil. Okay. He then moved to San Francisco because uh, he wanted to live in America and his wife is actually American. So they moved, they moved to San Francisco, got married. He told his boss he wasn't coming back. She's like, all right, well, if you're not coming back, this thing just came across my desk and it was one of my investors who knew this woman, who, his boss who worked at Diageo. Mm-hmm. And he's like, all right, fuck all, let's give it, give it a go. And like he and his wife had this whole perfect plan. She already got a job. He was going to get a job. It was going to be down the street. They're going to get their lunches together and the whole thing was yeah. going to be cute and whatever. And then <laughs> he goes and meets with me and he comes back. He tells the story a lot. And he's like, yeah, I came back from that lunch and my wife just took one look at my face and she's like, you're going to work with this guy, aren't you? And he's like, yep, I think I am. <laughs> and that was like, it went from, it went from there. So uh, OB exits and you uh, obviously decide that you're going to you know, start another company, another yeah. beverage company. Uh, how did you guys start thinking about what that was going to be? And I think off the, you know, before the podcast uh, we were recording, you mentioned that it was like years and years of development. Um, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Um, how did what was the kind of the initial stage of of Olipop and how did it even what was it? How did the name come about? How did the concept come about? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so one piece of it was basically just kind of looking at the stage at which we exited Obi and thinking like. Did we take this thing as far as because once you exit a business, it's like you can't control its destiny anymore. You don't know, you know, and we have some plans. So we're like, did we accomplish those or not? I'm like, no, probably not. And then to be honest, the other thing that was really motivating to me is 
I have been watching a change in the microbiome kind of research over the last, and metabolic health research for that matter, over the last kind of decade. Because it's a microbiome science is fascinating. It's a really emergent field. So they're kind of finding new stuff out, out about it all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, back when I started OB and even in my kombucha days, the kind of idea was like, we'll have these probiotics and these probiotics will go in and do X, Y, and Z. But the problem is that like the consumer grade probiotics haven't really delivered for the most part on that initial promise, you know? And like, um, and then at the same time, there's this whole interesting, you know, slate of research around kind of hunter gatherers and indigenous kind of indigenous Mm -hmm. diets. Mm -hmm. And they're like, well, you know, their microbiomes are just like infinitely better than ours. Their metabolic disease is like non-existent. Like there's all these kind of, you know, health related outcomes and it's all happening through the diet. So what I tried to do was go in and look at all the literature and say, what are the big pieces in these indigenous diets that are missing from the industrialized diet? And I kind of broke down into fiber, mm-hmm. prebiotics, which are typically fiber, but not always. And then in general nutrient diversity, which is also one of the things that I experienced when I was going through my own kind of nutrition change up was obviously drastically higher quantities of all three of those things. Mm-hmm. Like it made a ton of sense to me. Um, and I was like, okay, so this is actually the way that the, the kind of science is shifting. Wait, what are the products that are out like Metamucil? Like, you know, like what's yeah. out there that's like it's not the sexiest product set, but it's a really useful thing. Um, and I mean in general, like so indigenous hunter-gatherers in general get like a hundred to two hundred grams of fiber a day. And that's research out of out of Stanford, that's research out of UCSD. There's a ton of there's a lot of great like uh, uh pieces of research has been done to kind of validate that the average American gets between 10 and 16 grams a day. So just like as a, and the FDA Mm -hmm. recommends 28 and the world health organization recommends 30 to 40. But the reality is like, we're not getting anywhere near the the amount that we need to. And then I can spare you guys the gory details. But the, the issue is that that actually that deficit in our diet compounds generationally Mm. so there's been like an almost 400 percent increase in food allergy complaints since the 1970s um you know when they look at the mucosal lining in our our digestive tract versus hunter gatherers it's like 20 percent of the thickness that's really important because that that keeps inflammation low and keeps your system there's there's many many layers can that be reversed that you know i don't know how much like by how many biopsies they've done uh, tracking that. There has been translational research, though. So basically, where they've taken people on an indigenous diet, they've given them an industrialized diet, and vice versa. They've certainly seen uh, they've certainly seen health uh, improvements, and they've seen improvements to microbiome uh, diversity and also total quantity of beneficial microorganisms. Mm. Both of which you are, you you definitely want. So you want to start something? I assume using that. As your thesis, let's yeah, hundred percent, yeah. But yeah. was Olipop the answer immediately? It it was, yeah. Because I mean, I also one of the things we learned is, you know, I think I have this concept of like the healthy soda that I kind of tested out in OB form, um, and certain aspects of it I think we did right, and certain aspects of it I think we did wrong. And I also got a lot of strong data signals that you know customer consumers are really ready for something mm-hmm. like a healthy alternative soda or a new type type of soda. I mean, back when we were starting Obi, I won't say the person, but there was a major CEO who was talking to us and was like, literally, he was on our board of advisors and quit. Because he wanted us to turn Obi into a sparkling water. And he literally said, 
that you have a gift from God with this product and you're going to throw it away by trying to make it a soda. Like it's the, and he just quit. He quit our advisory board. <laughs> can you, can so, you explain in, in, in the difference between like why, why it's considered soda and like why sparkling or like something, yeah. like a seltzer or whatever it might be is not soda. It's so, I mean the way it gets described to me when I go into areas like the Midwest and you know, where the soda's oh, very alive and well is that it's just the fullness of the flavor. You know, and that's what you, I think people experience pretty generally when they have an Olipop versus Mm -hmm. a lot of the other brands or the sparkling waters or competing brands is that they, they're just, they're thin. There's not a lot of boldness to the flavor. And like, I fucking love flavor. Like when I cook at home, probably add too much flavor to be honest with you. Like (laughs) I want like a full, you don't want it to linger. You don't want it to be cloying. You don't want it to be like oversaturating, but I want like. I really love flavor and I want yeah. to have that experience with my with I want the customers to have that experience. So with, yeah. Yeah, you don't feel like you're drinking something that's like super diet or sparkling water because, you know, that's not the flavor experience. That what, they what's interesting is like the research you were doing, like the thing that you realized you were looking at what was sort of missing or like lacking and then but I think that if someone was to look at like the soda industry or wanting to disrupt it, they would look at like the overconsumption of like sugar, for example, totally. or something like that. Yeah. So you, so I'm, I'm just sort of curious, like how did that, you know, the research of like, for example, like us lacking like certain fiber yeah, or whatever yeah. in our diet lead to you? And, and what was your approach to trying to like pr- present like a healthier alternative to soda? Was it just the fact that like people were drinking too much like Coca-Cola or Pepsi or something like that? Or was there more to it than that? Well, so I've always thought of the product as having like a front end and a, and a back end, right? So the front end is going to be brand, is going to be flavor. That's kind of like, I call that like the Trojan horse. So the idea is being like, like if you want to convert people's behavior, don't show up and be like, you're so stupid for drinking soda. It's like, yeah. dude, fuck you. I grew up drinking soda. It's like it was, Coke was there on my Christmas when I was 12 and like you weren't. So, yeah. you know, like I just <laughs> I feel like it's a pretty uh, – it's a pretty – telling people they're stupid for their decisions right. is like not a great way to influence them. And so for yep. me, it's like, hey, you like soda. Cool. It's because it's delicious. I get it. I liked soda for a long time too. Here's something that tastes – just like soda, uh, and you can enjoy it, so it makes the, the conversion easier. And then I almost thought a little bit separately in terms of kind of then what do I want to sneak into that formula? Like what do I want to have right. in that formula? Well, so, okay, so yes, like soda is crazy high in sugar. So why don't we build a low-sugar one because that's going to be helpful. And then, you know, fiber reacts almost anti- completely antithetically to uh, the way the sugar reacts in the body and in the liver. So you're actually you're you're taking the thing that is typically driving the most health disruption and you're using it to deliver the thing that is the actual antidote to the sugar that's causing all the issues. Mm. The one thing I'm curious about, and I, I always think about this when I look at drinks like Olipop or like healthy alternatives, even like a kombucha. Yeah. Um, is that one thing a traditional soda has done let's call it well for their business, is that they're addictive as shit, right? Cause, right. Because it has either you're addicted to the sugar or the caffeine yeah. or whatever it may be, right? Like, I'm, I love water. Like, I don't know if I'm addicted to it, but, like, I love it. I need it. Yeah. And everybody needs it. But I look at something like, now let's talk about Olipop, and I'm like, I love it. It tastes great. I want to have it with my meals. Right. But I don't think I'm addicted to it, and, and, and or I can't get addicted to it, Correct. I mean, addiction is a hard thing to track, you know, because I think that, for example, I think one of the reasons 
one of the big one of the big like cons that have been pulled on industrialized society is like create a low quality of life where people work constantly, they get treated like machines mm-hmm. and you know, a lot of, and they're not, especially in the United States, there's no social safety net mm-hmm. and like very little social fabric. And then when that makes them miserable, give them something that they can use to kind of put a bandaid on that problem. Right. It's just so a they, cycle. Yeah. yeah. And then the, in this particular case, what that particular bandaid does is it actually deepens the groove because now you're also making the health decline. Right. So when you talk about things like addiction, you can look at like what's what's the emotional upside, you know, and what's that experience that they're having. But yeah, in uh, soda, definitely takes it to another level, right? Because right. the the way I mean, and I can tell me which rabbit holes you want me to go down. No, that's but fine. Like, yeah. Yeah, like I, mean, I remember my mom used to drink like five cokes a day, and like yeah. it's like well because it's, it's not start, the flavor, you know. But you start crashing, right? So you totally. you get your acid, your sugar, and your caffeine bumps you up, and then you crash. Boom. I would, I yep. can't quite say the product I was working on yet, but I just working incredibly hard on a major soda type uh, that will be coming out later this year. So I had to drink like... Under a, Olipop or... Yeah, it'll be an yeah. Olipop. Yeah. Uh, so I had to drink like a liter of this shit a day almost for like a month straight, which is horrible. I think I gained like five pounds doing this. Like horrific. But I was getting in that same cycle as I was drinking this as I would like... I would have some. I'd actually feel better and then I'd crash and it did incentivize the continued consumption. I think I have an idea of what this might be, but... Yeah, well, exactly. What people are going through when they're having that experience. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so it, between like... Hey, I need something that's like tasty and hyper stimulating to make me feel better and like emotionally. And right. then I also need something that like jacks up my sugar and jacks up my caffeine. It's like, yeah, that combination will create addiction quite in a quite straightforward way. So Olipop's born. I mean, how do you guys fund this thing? I mean, you, do you go the investment route? We did. Seas? Yeah. Yeah. We did raise cap. We've actually raised quite a bit of capital to date, but, um, you know, one of the things that was nice is kind of how we handled ourselves through the OB process. You know, we did get a lot of respect with our investors. Um, so we exited OB, you know, with a pretty, with a great set of suppliers and a great set of investors that were willing to jump into what we were doing next. Especially, like, my other piece as well is like, okay, if I'm going to have one beverage company and then I'm going to come back and I'm going to be in like similar ish territory. Like the next one's going to absolutely slap, right? Like it's got to, it's got to go yeah, you, bullseye through. Yeah. The you can't come back and flop. Yeah, exactly. You're like a loser. Yeah. <laughs> never, never good no. at that point. So, um, <laughs> so I think like we got the concept so tight, you yeah. know, and the flavor profile so tight that like, even the investors we kind of knew already, they tried it and they got, they saw what we were working on. They're like, Oh, Holy shit. Yeah, I get it. Like, Take take my money. We, and you were doing over. the product still, the product development. Second, you were doing the product development. I've always done a hundred percent of our product development. Yeah. yeah, and and about how long did you say it took? Like until launching the product. So I started working on the Olipop formula in 2017, and then we actually launched late 2018. Oh, not too long. Simultaneously, so it was Ob had a four year. Got it. it. That was like really complicated microbiology. Yeah, yeah. Um, but all this stuff is iterative, right? Like all this stuff is. Com- compounded like going through something that difficult then makes the next thing like you have a whole set of tools mm-hmm. that you can apply to. i've even think i've become a better product like i look at the flavors i launched early in olipop 
I look at what I'm launching now. I'm like, I've become a better product developer since I launched Olipop. Yeah. I feel like with R&D, and I haven't really gone through the process to really know this, but I feel like it, it, it's easy to get in a place where you're sort of just spinning your wheels and you don't know like what the, maybe like the end result or goal is. Did you have a clear idea of what you wanted to build and like, what were you leading with? Was it the, the, a certain amount of fiber to be able to also like taste well? And like, yeah, what yeah. was the, what yeah. was like the thing that you were? Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, the first thing I did look at as a kid, like the existing clinical literature that does exist around fiber and prebiotics, like what, what are the, the types and what's the levels. And so I wanted to actually have something where it's like, if someone can only afford a can a day or only drinks a can a day, we'll just still provide them with a benefit. And actually now we have clinical trials done with Purdue and Baylor college of medicine, which sends some strong signals that the answer is like, absolutely still provides a material benefit, but that's by design. So that there was some kind of like non-negotiables there for me. Cause I just didn't want to have like a, product where you have to drink like eight to get the benefit out of it right um and the fiber is actually useful it does provide a certain amount of substance to the formula you know get a little bit of that soda syrupiness but you're not it's not coming from real syrup it's coming from this kind of yeah, hologram if you will that you're building out of like all these different your acid profile and your sweetness profile and your fibers and all your kind of different ingredients. Yeah. Um, so what happens like one day you just like taste the formula and you're like, all right, it's ready. Or like, did kind you of, feel like yeah. that? Or, yeah. yeah, no, that is how I, that is how I work. It's just like, uh, you know, I've become much more efficient. So I, my style has changed a little bit. I've gotten to the point uh, where I'll think of a formula and then some things I can't do this with, like this one particular drink I just was working on, this flavor I was working on, like I couldn't approach it this way because it's just so complex. But for a lot of them, I'll actually spend a lot of time thinking about fl the flavor architecture. So this is, again, one of the ways my brain works. It's really helpful for me. <laughs> so I can really conceptualize stuff and I can like almost taste it. And now I know like, here's what all the different acids do and here's what all the blah, blahs do. So I can sit there in my mind work through the architecture and then I try to get to the point where by the time I'm writing a formula down on my notebook that I'm trying to be within like shooting distance of where it actually needs to end out. And I've been like pretty good at that mm -hmm. to this, you know, some, then you start iterating, right? Cause it's always that last 20 to 30% where it's like, okay, this one flavor is just a little off or these aren't quite working together. I mean, this is, yeah, I also I having a background in music production is actually really helpful for formulating because when you're working on like a song, you're like, okay, here's my kick drum, here's my bass line, here's my mids, here's my blah blah blahs, and all of those things sit in a stereo field. Yeah, and so and some are mono and some are stereo and all this kind of stuff. So when I taste products. I think of it in terms of its you, space. You taste, it you taste in mono and stereo? Yeah. I, I taste like, I'm like, what color is this? Yeah. Where does it sit in my mouth? And I build like yeah. effectively a stereo field out of what I'm consuming. And then I can literally be like, the bass notes are off or the, these notes are off. And I can mm -hmm. work towards that until, oh, this thing actually makes sense now. The other tip I trick I use is <clears throat> as I'm working through it, if I drink it and I put it down and then without thinking about it within 20 seconds, I'm picking it back up because I want to have more and not because I'm like obsessed with figuring out what's wrong with it, but because I actually want to drink it. I'm like, all right, I'm pretty close now. Mm. Will there be like a two liter Olipop one day just to kind of like. Never, never say never. We're, we are putting out uh, like uh, six packs and uh, yep. eight, four packs. And like we're putting out different pack sizes in terms of, I mean, we're never going to go into the plastic bottle just because right. it's shit for the environment you do see kombuchas doing those gigantic glass things i don't know if glass Expensive. 
it's expensive and it's also heavy. Glass is really heavy right. to ship around. So when you try to look at the like the CO2 impacts of all that, and it can break and like it's, it's a lot, you know. So yeah. the issue is really just going to be around the form factor. But I could see a larger form factor in our future, right? Because I'm just thinking in terms of scale. Like in, like I brought up parties before. You know, you could definitely have the cans at a party, right? But I feel like you know, growing up, you know, you have your like you know pizza parties and your totally. burgers, barbecues, this yeah, and that, whatever. Yeah. And it's always that like two liter fucking like Coke, Sprite, Dr Pepper. Yeah. You know, it's like right there. How, how come they, I haven't been to any of your pizza parties? What is it? <laughs> you, you didn't eat pizza back then. I don't know. <laughs> well, dude, this is the thing. I mean, this is why I'm always like the. I mean, to be this is don't get me started on this diet drive. Yeah, but yeah, this yeah. is why there needs to be way more fucking research for. Because, like, why is there not a fucking algae-based shrink wrap yet? Like, right, I'm just yeah. like, why are there not better? Yeah. There are some plant-based plastics that can hold uh, liquids, but they can't hold carbonation. And I'm sure whoever invents that is going to become, like, a trillionaire. Fucking so rich. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and it's yeah. like, and I'm sure somebody's working. I'm hoping somebody's working on it because I do see a day that you will replace all plastic. Like, somebody's definitely doing that. It's There's not even, it's like, again, this gets back to this, like, false, like, di- right. like, well, do we fix the environment or do we yeah. not fix pa- the environment? Papers, what paper straws doing? are not the answer, I'll tell you. <laughs> yeah, no. Well, we do. Yeah. I mean, it's a crazy number. Apparently, we do use 500 million fucking straws every day I believe really? in yeah. the United I mean, States, which is yeah. unfathomable. But right, you're right. right. I mean, the big issue is, like, the oil companies and shit need to get the shit together. But, like, yeah. every time that we run a pallet and we have to cover a plastic wrap i'm like this is just it yeah. it kills me right. like why don't we have this i'm not sure if like ob ever reached the 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 scale that you guys are at with olipop for now. sure not not yeah, no. so what is something maybe at this stage that you've learned or seen that maybe you didn't like know about the industry or like the you know of building a beverage band like olipop that you can share yeah i mean it's probably not the answer you're looking for but i do find that like things you know, it's it's kind of when you're a lot smaller, there's upsides and there's downsides. The downside is that if you're, if you're small and you show something of promise, uh, lots of people are going to try to parasite off of you and get their piece, right? And you're in a pretty like fragile position, and so you always have to be fucking buffering against that and making really terrible choices around where things go. We did have to do less of that with Olipop because of the kind of uh, reputation that we had established. But right. the thing that's interesting to me is we've gotten bigger is really on like the human front because especially on the investor side, early on, you know, you basically deal with investors. It's like they're either fucking assholes and they don't give a shit or they actually will take the time to hear you out. And then you kind of, it's easier to figure out like who do I want to work with and who do I not want to work with. And then you get to it. We're currently the fastest growing functional uh, refrigerator beverage in the country. Mm-hmm. And then we built what's I'm almost even more excited about is that what we built has turned into a new category so we're called functional soda there's a handful of brands in the category it's the fastest growing beverage category in the country wow um and i can imagine the, that's what happened with kombucha a little bit right at some point similar but like we're gonna blow past kombucha yeah. really quickly mm. um i think as a, as a category i mean we're it's like 440 percent growth over the last 52 weeks mm. Um, we're at 250% growth over the last 52 weeks. I mean, 2020, we grew by 1100%. Crazy. Wow. Which is, and then 2021, we grew by, fuck, what's the number? Like 540%. What do you think that is a result of? Like, what is it? Like, is it just a natural progression of like human consumption that we get there? Like, was there something that obviously you guys introducing a great product is, is a big piece of yeah, that, yeah. but what, like, is there anything else you could point to as to why? Well, I do think a lot of the innovation that happens, especially in food and beverage, does happen for the kind of 
progressive coastal communities, you know? Yeah. And so then it's like, okay, it's another weird kale juice with ashwagandha and reishi mushroom in it. And <laughs> I don't know, someone shopping at a fucking Kroger in Ohio is going to be like, what the fuck is this for $8? You know? Yeah. And because, you know, an interesting experience that I had was a couple years ago at this point, we were still in mostly natural channel and coastal, but, mm-hmm. uh, Myself and some of the people from the company went to go do a tabletop show for 7-Eleven in like Dallas. And I was like, okay, finally, we're going to get our asses handed to us. I'm I'm sampling these like corporate 7-Eleven employees in Dallas fucking Texas. I'm going to get my ass handed to me. And um, I got less pushback from them, that group, than I got from people I'd sample at Whole Foods in California. And I would be like, what's going on? And I'd try to... Ask them about it. And the thing I was kind of talking about earlier where they're like, yeah, it actually is full flavored. It actually tastes good. So, mm-hmm. and you know what? They're like, I tried to switch from soda to sparkling water and it all just tastes like salt water, which is the thing I heard over and over again for some reason of that show. But yeah, I think this like really what I'm trying to do with Olipop is like, it's innovation for the rest of us. It's innovation for everybody. It's like, we do, you know, kombucha is a billion dollar market. That's cool. Like I mentioned before, so does 40 plus billion. Yeah. And these are US these are US numbers. So like the scale the scale of penetration and interest is just like on such a whole different whole different playing field. You mentioned at one point, I don't know if you remember, but it was about the fact that you had that Olipop is just bigger than what currently we're seeing, right? Like what is that goal or are you able to share what that ultimate goal is? Yeah, I mean, so for my big thing, there's a handful of pieces here. Um, you know, Firstly, I do like the concept of actually having like an empathetic formula that says, okay, cool. Like Coke, Pepsi, Keurig, Dr. Pepper, not Keurig so much, but Dr. Pepper, like those brands have been inside of the United States for like 125 plus years, right? They're like so foundational to our country. Um, And so having a little empathy for the fact that everybody grew up drinking it. I mean, Coke's whole premise is to be in arm's reach at all times for 99 cents or less a can, right? Mm -hmm. So that shit has worked for a really long time. And I like this idea of like, let's move more of our uh, actual innovation into that kind of playing field. The other thing that's huge is, you know, like having now been a part of the quote health and wellness kind of products sector for 16 years and even having been guilty of this myself when I was younger and more naive or whatever the fuck it was. But like a lot of health claims get made. Like for example, I was out hawking kombucha and being like, it does this and it does this. And now I'm older and I look at the data and I'm like, there's only been one randomized human clinical trial in kombucha and the results were inconclusive. There's no solid data (coughs) backing this category up and health and wellness like is a bucket. So if you include food, beverage and supplements in 2021, it was a $300 billion industry in the United States. It's massive. And so many of the products that are in that category make all kinds of claims. And they have just, they're either just totally full of shit or they have just no idea if it's doing what. I mean, I won't get into it. But one of our competitors barely even has a prebiotic even in their product. Or, you know, they released like a new line that now has like some, but for the longest time, they literally didn't have prebiotics. Called themselves prebiotic soda, said that the product cleared your skin, was good for your immune system, was good for like in the middle of COVID. I'm like, are you fucking kidding me right now? And but that's just normal. It's an it's normal because of loose regulation and an uneducated population to make a bunch of claims. Right. right. So this is why we did research with Purdue and Baylor, which is why we're doing more research mm-hmm. because I actually would like to make a shift and uh, where. Th- if people are paying a premium for a product and it's going to be helpful for them, that there's actually some data on the product, not right. just on the ingredient in general. Right. 
that kind of helps to w- validate that. But simultaneously, like that's got to be strategically advantageous for the business because right. you can go around and making the moral argument all day, but you know the business community is going to be the business community unless they see how that is good for the business itself. Mm-hmm. So being astronomically successful, holding down actual empirical data, um, creating an empathetic, well-formulated product. And then there are some ways, which can't quite get into yet, but there's some ways that that's going to play out uh, or that we're I'm looking to have them play out that could be very disruptive to a couple different industries. And we talk about the industry in general, you know, just even CPG or just like beverages and products yeah. and how much of a noisy space it is. And it sounds like a lot of brands, you know, obviously try to get to a certain point where they can exit, whether it's like some sort of acquisition or something. And it's usually the big guys, right? Like the Coca-Cola's and the Pepsi's yeah, and yeah, the yeah. behemoths that you mentioned. Do you think that there's still room or like the opportunity for a brand, say it's Olipop, say it's another CPG company, to get to that level, to be like a multi-brand, you know, international conglomerate of yeah. like, is so that? So the, it's like a, it's a mixed answer. In Olipop's case, there is potentially a route to it. If some stuff that I want to pull off, I am able to pull off, which opens up the headroom on the available market share. Um, and at that point in time, you can start looking at something like an IPO. So, because basically we have a bunch of investors and they they need a liquidity event. Right. So it's either going to be an IPO or it's going to be a strategic acquisition. One of those two things. Yep. Um, If you, and and in theory, if you have an IPO, then the mark, the public market is going to beat you up a lot. And so like, it's, it's going to make it intrinsically, first of all, I don't really want to manage a public company. I mean, we'll see what happens if we get there. But then like, secondly, uh, you know, because of market forces, it can be a little harder to be innovative and kind of go your own way. And when you exit into a strategic, it's like that, but even more so the case. Um, depending on how Olipop goes, I think there's a real world where I do this, and then I do my next business, and then I have the wealth that I don't need investment, especially while the company is where the equity that you have to give away is the most expensive. And I think under those conditions, you could actually build something that stayed private. But mm-hmm. it would have to be you know, an exceptionally efficient business because, you know, as a beverage, like between KDP, Coke, and Dr. Pepper, they own 90% of the beverage industry in the United yeah. States. And they have a bunch of snacks. So you're going to have to find a way to navigate around Right. That. So for those that haven't tried it, I'm sure after listening to this interview, they will. Um, <laughs> I know, you know, they could obviously find it in several stores. I'm not yeah. sure which ones. Um, but I was also thinking research. Yeah, research it. Yeah, figure it out. If you really want to drink it, figure no, it out. No, I mean you can't go Whole to our website. Sure. You can go to our website. Our website too, yeah. Is drinkolipop.com and we do have a store locator. Perfect. Yeah. There you go. I was also gonna ask, like, the one thing that I think, you know, Coke and Pepsi and all those have done really well is that any restaurant you go to, obviously, they have that B2B totally. strategy. Yeah, yeah. When does that come into Olipop? Or, or does it at all? It does, yeah. So we uh, just opened up a distributor that will give us massive capacity to influence nice. the food, kind of food service fast casual. Nice. Uh, and we do have a director of food service. So we only just signed that deal like within the last two weeks. Awesome. Uh, but it gives us a lot of headroom to start opening that. Because I feel like that's a great place for customers to like learn about 100%. your product. Yeah. yeah. Right? It's so. a little difficult because it's not like you can have like uh, point of sale stuff. Right, you know, so they have to like see it on a menu or see it in a case and be curious, or like on the like. Reminds me of the uh, La Colombe story we had. Yeah. Uh, we had the founder of La Colombe Coffee. Yeah, and like I think he, the, it was like some situation where yeah. like they had to put that it was like La Colombe on the menu. Well, or he paid the, like they paid him 
to put his like the restaurant. He'll go into like restaurants. Yeah, yeah, I'll take yeah. that deal. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> pretty well, pretty interesting deal. That's not the deal that they offered him. Yeah. That's the deal he he ended up negotiating. <laughs> yeah. Was that right. was that the, he they would pay him like a licensing agreement or like some licensing fee <laughs> to have his coffee that they were buying. Yeah. On the menu. I don't it's, know if you could get that deal. I don't know how true that deal was. Yeah. I don't know. It doesn't matter. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, it's worth it's worth it's a first thing yeah. For sure I wouldn't go on yeah. a menu and just be like, what would you put? Like Coke alternative or soda <laughs> no, alternative? No, no, yeah, You'd yeah. have to put the brand name in it. You'd have to put the brand name, yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, I mean, this has been such an incredible, like yeah. insightful conversation. I wish I wish like I'm looking at the time and I'm like, God, I wish we could sit here more and I'm just about to chat. start a life sciences company. I, I mean, you inspired <laughs> us for sure. But I can't you know, can't thank you enough for coming here and, and hanging out with us um and, and just sharing and being so open with your story yeah, and like just yeah. being, you know, super open about sharing it all and uh you know, hope hope everything you know goes as planned as as you imagine it to be with the company, and we're excited. We'll you know to to kind of follow on that that journey, and uh, yeah, man, um, it's been a pleasure. Thank both of you so much for having me.